this is not an analogy. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope this is clear. Like I'm not comparing and contrasting the instrumentalization to abolition. I mean, I'm saying the instrumentalization is also abolition. If you go, if you go into a prison, um, like you said, prison is maddening. Prison is disabling. I don't think you can do prison abolition without understanding disability justice. Uh, I don't think you can understand incarceration without understanding the variety of locations in which incarceration happens. The goal here is to understand uh, abolition as a movement for liberation um, for, for all of us. Deaf panel. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Liat Ben Moshe. Liat is an assistant professor of criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago and author of the new book, Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and Prison Abolition, which is out this year from University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for joining the panel today, Liat. We're so happy to have you here to talk about your work and book. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. This is actually kind of a super special interview, kind of the first of its kind. Um, We've just finished reading your book in our show's community reading group. So for the past uh, several weeks, for listeners who are not familiar, there's a group of community members who have been sitting every Sunday night to discuss this book chapter by chapter. So first off, I just as a quick aside, I want to thank everyone who came to hang out to listen and participate in discussions. Yeah, quick shout out to reading group and huge thank you to Sal and and Charlie for facilitating and all their hard work on this. Um, You know, this conversation today is totally going to be informed by everyone's contributions. But the majority of people listening, they're not going to have read Decarcerating Disability. Liat, for those not familiar, do you think you could give us a little brief background on your work and how that led to this book? Sure. Um, that's a great question. Also, for people who, who read the book, because that's not in it. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, but I just want to say that A plus uh, for all of you for um, reading this um, monumentous um, book that originally was longer, by the way. I, it's a book that came about by a desire to learn more about the topic and me hoping somebody else will write this book. Um, (laughs) after about 10 years of doing work around issues of deinstitutionalization, disability, disability studies, disability culture, and prison and prison abolition, uh, nobody else wrote this book. So, right. <laughs> so, um, yes. So I wrote this book really over a period of about 10 years, which I wanted it to be accountable to the variety of movements that I'm talking about. Because prison abolition is not one thing. Deinstitutionalization is not one thing. And, um, you know, that, that made the, the book uh, very uh, hard to write, but hopefully gives reader a complex and layered tale over the the time period. And the main, you know, the main reason why it kind of led me to the book is because as somebody that's coming outside of the U.S., um, I was really fascinated by the, the, the history of institutionalization and deinstitutionalization mm-hmm. in, the, in the U.S. And, and the more that I uh, got to meet people, that were uh, activists in this area, uh, that were scholars in this area, or were 
or are uh, institutionalized or incarcerated themselves, the more I realized that the two uh, most kind of pervasive forms of um, or, or, or pervasive liberation movements uh, out of carceral facilities, which are, to me, deinstitutionalization and prison abolition, people in those movements don't actually talk to each other, mm-hmm. which was really surprised surprising to me so that's why i kept waiting for you know somebody who's um kind of more u.s based person um that has been doing this work for a really long time to write that book and then i became that person after 10 <laughs> years of doing that work so um so that was the impetus the impetus was really to bridge those two things yeah no and it's it's so important um i think honestly like this book is, in, in my opinion, like so important and relevant also to our current context that I'm sure you couldn't have even imagined it being when you were writing it. Yeah, you know, it, in, in a way, you're, you're pointing to a historical moment, which I think a lot of people have a broad misunderstanding of um, more than anything else in, in our sort of cultural l- consciousness level. Right. Um, it's it's an, a moment of really important and profound social change that's either not addressed or completely glossed over or as you say sort of there's this like false equivalence in there and I think it's important to talk about now because like deinstitutionalization as it occurred as a movement within the United States is sort of from a a different framework and like a different like range of political imagination that I think could be really useful to learn from right now Um, and I, I think it's also important to talk about how this process was subject to neoliberal austerity and I thought maybe like a good way to get us started was we could actually sort of talk about what these institutions are and or were rather um, and and what they became, because I don't think a lot of people actually really know like the the full story here of, of what went away when um, this sort of push that you talk about in your book happened. Right. Um, so um, as you say, this is incredibly relevant to the now. I want people to understand because um, the story that's in the book is is about these national trends, but in some states in the U.S., um, deinstitutionalization never came. <laughs> um, and so, if some of the people listening are in a state where that's the case, they might kind of not see around them uh, the variety of um, deinstitutionalization practices that have happened in in a variety of other states. So, you know, to this day, there's at least 14 states in the U.S. that have closed. Uh, all their uh, large state institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, for example. And mm-hmm. then there's a lot of other states who have closed nothing. <laughs> um, and then there's states in between. So this is really important just as a caveat in the story I'm about to tell. It's, it's, not, uh, it's varied across the board in, in various states. Um, but the reason why it's rele- relevant for today is because, you know, COVID has shown that um, people in congregate facilities obviously are more susceptible to getting COVID. Um, and we have today a variety of carceral spaces like prisons, jails, and detention centers, and nursing homes, um, and still some of the kind of large institutions in some states. Um, so in some states, these large institutions stayed, and some of them, they just changed name or changed hands or changed function. Uh, but what COVID has shown is that they still exist and they're still uh, incredibly harmful and dangerous to the lives of people who are in them. And so I want to start this by saying that, first of all, there were two deinstitutionalizations. 
and there was one in the field of intellectual and developmental disabilities. And for people who don't know what that is, it's the field, um, what we used to call mental retardation. Mm-hmm. And before that, we used to call it feeble-mindedness uh, in the era of, <laughs> you know, eugenics um, yeah. and, and early 20th century. So this is the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. Um, today, we call it intellectual developmental disabilities. So there were these um, huge institutions for people with intellectual disabilities. And by huge people might think, I mean, you know, like 90 people, mm-hmm. 200 people. Some of them have thousands of people. Right. You know, in their heyday with very little staff. Um, and they were basically warehouses. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to call it. I mean, they were basically warehouses in which people with disabilities were placed, sometimes uh, in a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um very, very often on the advice of doctors, very often because uh, parents and, and others who, who placed uh, people there, including children, didn't have uh, other alternatives. Um, you know, there was no kind of resources to take care of kids at home. Um, schooling was incredibly difficult. So this is in the era of uh, disability and racial segregation in education. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is the era that we're talking about. And um, I would just say the institutionalization in uh, intellectual disabilities happened about uh, 10, 15, 20 years after the institutionalization in mental health, which is what when we say the institutionalization, that's what people think about, right? Like the right. psych facilities, the cuckoo's nest, <laughs> um, you know, all of these kind of um, large uh, psychiatric hospitals that, uh, that existed and in, in which uh, as opposed to today, people were incarcerated for very, very long periods of time. So people were hospitalized, um, not like today, um, which the hospitalization still exists, but over shorter periods of time. People were hospitalized for years, mm-hmm. for years, and sometimes for uh, almost a lifetime. And so this gives you maybe some, a little bit of a texture um, into the way these institutions were. They were um, these kind of warehouses for people with disabilities uh, that have become worse over time. I mean, obviously, they were opened with these I- ideals of uh, rehabilitation, but very, very uh, early on, um, it was clear that um, for some people, there will be no rehabilitation at all. Um, <laughs> and for others, they will, quote unquote, rehabilitate themselves by being actual. Um, uh, workers in these facilities. Um, so they did, you know, the laundry, they did the cooking, they did the taking care of the more chronic patients and, and so on. And there's other um, histories that talk about that much more than in my book. But um, when we go into the institutionalization, which in mental health started happening uh, in the, uh, in, towards the end of the 50s and in um, intellectual disabilities about 15 years later, then you have um, a kind of idea of what these places uh, were uh, in their heyday, which were, um, again, uh, not places of, of rehabilitation and, and quote-unquote treatment. Right. They were they were often, you know, quite crowded. And I think I, I've not personally really come across many accounts of people, particularly who were put in these facilities for uh, intellectual or developmental disabilities, ever getting out, too. So there, there is sort of this um, 
you know, extension almost from the like, I don't know, like the Victorian poorhouse, right, where you have someone like marked for productivity under capitalism. And um, the designation is almost like, are you more productive in the workforce? Or um, are you more productive as like a raw material for um, capital to sort of generate around you? And we need to like, remove you from the community to permit like the other, quote unquote, normal people who are in your family, um, to live a, a normal life where they can be productive under capitalism. And these, these institutions kind of existed as, um, as not, not just like a last resort, but sort of the only choice for a lot of families, uh, during this time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think it's really incredibly useful to understand, um, exactly what you're saying that people with disabilities, uh, of course, to this day, are seen as a burden on uh, capitalist systems of production. And yet, first of all, they're incredibly, uh, quote unquote, productive when they're put <laughs> to work in these personal spaces. Right? For sub-minimum so, wages, of course. <laughs> um, or, or, <laughs> right. no, or no wages. Right. Uh, so the, the way that we know that people with IDG um, were working in these facilities and in those capacities um, is, of course, because they told us um, mm-hmm. And then uh, legally in lawsuits, um, people started suing for um, basically when they got out, they didn't have any record of social security number, for example. They couldn't get um, any benefits, uh, including uh, as they aged. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it became clear that there was no kind of record of them ever actually working <laughs> in this facility. Wow. So this is not sub-minimum wages. I mean, we're talking about something very different. We're talking about being property of state. Right. Um, right. And the later kind of lawsuits happened in the 70s um, show that. But, um, you know, so they're very productive in the in, in these carceral spaces. And uh, in addition, um, very productive for non for for profit uh, kind of entities, you know, today, like group homes, for example, mm-hmm. um, like nursing homes uh, and so on. Uh, and this is what, um, the scholar Martha Russell called handy capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, the use of, of disability to generate profit. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, um, I think the institution in, in a lot of ways is right now almost even more of a central component in the state's own finance model. Right. And I, I like the, the transition of a lot of this, um, let's say like power from these state-run institutions to, as you point out, like a lot of them just sort of became like privately owned facilities has been something that's happened over the course of decades. But I think it's, it represents something that we see quite often, like in the space of like health adjacent and healthcare adjacent things, which is you have this sort of cost uh, in mind, right? That the cost of like keeping people in society and keeping people healthy and giving people what they need is just absolutely too high. And so uh, our our answer is to essentially just take people and put them and as cheaply as possible, keep them sort of at subsistence, right? There isn't, um, it's not like these are like, you know, a, a university campus, which also has like warehouses, thousands of people, but like makes uh, an attempt to try and like have some sort of, I don't know, like, standard of living for people. These were like overcrowded facilities where obviously like you have the whole narrative of like exposés that went in and told the public about what was going on, but largely like many of these things still exist today, correct? 
Are these kind of carceral locales where where people are just warehoused? Yeah, I mean, like I said, some of them um, definitely have uh, changed names um, and changed um, some features. You know, uh, for instance, of course, the industry of group homes um, and kind of nursing homes that house people um, with a variety of disabilities, not only older people with disabilities, um, that has increased over time. Um, and this is because, you know, like, like I show in the book, uh, and I talk about it elsewhere with uh, another scholar um, activist, Jean uh, Stewart, if, if, if we can talk about the institutional industrial complex, which is what you were just describing, um, today, we need to really talk about the deinstitutional industrial complex, um, the variety of facilities where people go after they're incarcerated or instead of being incarcerated. Um, so these halfway homes, and this is also in the prison context, of course. So all these kind of re-entry facilities um, and in the disability context, uh, group homes, nursing homes for, for profit and so on. And so, yes, absolutely, these still exist. And I think to your larger point, um, the reason they exist is because the discourse um, has not uh, shifted um, mm-hmm. or not shifted completely. I do think a shift has occurred. Um, and this is to go back to the ori- original idea of, um, you know, that you said that people have a, a misunderstanding of deinstitutionalization. I do think deinstitutionalization was, um, did cause like a shift in perspective. But um, not in the way that we um, look at the value of people beyond capitalist productivity. And this is not just true to people with disabilities, of course. Mm-hmm. This is true to the fact that we still live under capitalism and the values um, of, of racial capitalism, settler colonialism, and so on are still very uh, pronounced um, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And so this idea that we need to value people beyond what they uh, provide to the, 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 you know, kind of systems of productivity under capitalism uh, is, of course, not something that that we see. So kind of newer facilities have uh, popped up instead of the the older ones. So these these older ones, maybe we'll shift back to you for a second. Um, And we should, I think, start with probably the uh, psychiatric deinstitutionalization movement. Like, how do these uh, mo- how do these movements kind of get started? How do we like get the push for reforms that would make uh, make versions of these institutions which were more palatable to the general public? Because at the end of the day, that's the ultimate issue that sort of arose was that the conditions in these places were awful, and um, you know, like as you pointed out, there was like stuff like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and all these sort of exposés. But there is that sort of like that media attention ignores the fact that there was like a sustained movement um, to change these conditions and really try, which was reform driven, obviously, but to try and change the system of warehousing in particular for psychiatric patients. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, so for people who don't uh, kind of know the context, so there was you know, the beginning of the 60s was really an era of um, very prevalent anti-psychiatry movement. Um, there were a lot of um, not just exposés, um, because exposés have occurred also in the 40s and 50s, but there was really kind of this uh, anti-authoritarian, uh, you know, the 60s spirit, basically. So anti-psychiatry really uh, latched onto that. 
uh, as well. This kind of idea of antisocial control and so on. And, um, the, uh, you know, the flower generation and so on. And so we start to see in the general public, not just within, you know, people who are connected to, uh, who have been psychiatrized or have been hospitalized and so on, but within the general public, the sentiment of, um, really being critical uh, of psychiatry. And of course, this is true both to this kind of, um, hippie uh, uh, spirit, but also to people uh, of color who have um, uh, particularly black liberation movements and so on, uh, gay liberation movements and others who have uh, critiqued psychiatry for being uh, oppressive. Mm -hmm. And so we start to see this wave of critiquing psychiatry that, that happens, but not in, not everybody in that wave necessarily we're critiquing psychiatry in order to end the psych hospital. And so I want to, you know, really emphasize your point, which is, in my opinion, um, because a lot of people actually pushed um, not for the abolition of psychiatry and not even for the abolition of psychiatric hospitalization, um, what people pushed for was the change in the conditions by which people are psychiatrized. Mm -hmm. And as long as that was the push, and this is true both in um, the field of mental health or in the psychiatry and, and also in the field of intellectual and developmental disabilities, as long as that was the push, let's make the conditions better. Um, let's, uh, you know, house people uh, in smaller facilities. Let's have more staff. Let's have more programming, uh, and so on and so on. Then, then these places um, continue, and this, so only when the kind of abolitionary mindset started to take hold, and this was true, especially in um, the field of intellectual de developmental disabilities, actually, where a lot of es uh, experts started to uh, quote unquote experts, right? People with degrees. <laughs> Um, yeah. started to, because the real experts, people who have been, um, institutionalized have been saying that for, you know, decades at that point. And by saying, I also mean people who are nonverbal. So when, uh, people who were professionals in the field of intellectual and mental disabilities, um, started to say, we cannot reform these facilities. We have to think about a different way of including people with disabilities into community settings, period. There shall no longer be the institution. And then we will figure out um, what to do. And they, you know, they figured out what to do. Of course, people with disabilities themselves, uh, you know, were the kind of originator uh, of, of this kind of knowledges. And so until, but until that point, they really were, um, you know, Rachel Her Herzig, who's a amazing, uh, prison abolitionist, um, and, uh, one of the co-founder of critical resistance and, and others. And she calls this, uh, idea of we can, um, when she talks about like the conditions of confinement within prisons and lawsuits in relation to that. And she calls this tweaking Armageddon. <laughs> it's very appropriate. And, Yes, yes, I really like that. And I think this is exactly what happened in, uh, the, in institutionalization as well. As long as you tweak Armageddon, then you might have a smaller Armageddon. But right. 
um, you will not have liberation. And so this is the kind of tale that I try to to tell in the book. No, and that's so important to you because I, I feel like you see it now too in current movements where there, and you write about this a lot also um, in your other work, which is just there, there is this push and pull that you have in current pushes for reform where often the things that are being presented for um, any type of institutional setting is really an aesthetic overhaul, you know, trying to make it appear to be a more humane uh, locale. But at the end of the day, it's still a, a carceral facility, the principal idea of which is to warehouse the individual outside of the community, because for whatever reason, our society is like incapable, we, we feel that it's incapable of, um, you know, accom- accommodating anyone with like a, any sort of non-normative existence, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And this is, you know, very um, indebted to the work of a lot of, of activists, um, past and current. I really like um, James Kilgore's conceptualization of carceral humanism, which exactly points to what you're saying is this idea that, okay, now the prison, he's talking about it in relation to incarceration and um, mm-hmm. other form of kind of current um, carcerality and how the system makes itself look hu- humane. You know, so now it's not incarceration. Now it's for your own good. Um, right. And, you know, this is what I call carceral uh, ableism or carceral sanism, depending on the context. For example, carceral sanism would be this idea that we should open mental health jail. <laughs> um, so so exactly kind of what, what you're talking about, this idea that um, we, we should reform based on what, quote unquote, people need. And so if, oh, people need drug um, treatment, people need mental health treatment, great, we'll do it in a jail, you know? Right. Um, as if, A, this ever happens, people actually get treatment um, in, in these facilities. And, and B, as if that's not a complete oxymoron that you <laughs> can get healing in a cage. Um, right. But I think it's, it's, so, it's so entrenched in these neoliberal frameworks, this idea. So... I think it really plays so well to this this ideology. What I mean by this, I mean carceral humanism or carceral feminism really plays so well to this ideology. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that you talk about often in the book, which other scholars talk about as well, is sort of how the the disabling factors of these institutions is, is like often not even considered in these discussions of like trying to produce more humane mental health prisons, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen in the context of COVID especially is that, you know, it's really important to understand exactly what happened and what went wrong because we run the risk of repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Why do you think the like neoliberal ideology as it played out in in this historic battle like why do you think that's resulted in this like perpetual cycle of of reformism that has just um resulted in a continuation of the exact same sort of priorities that we've had for for decades now um well i think it's because you know neoliberalism is um uh, so taken for granted you know for example this idea of um choice Right, these, these choice narratives of um, well, there's two sides to everything, and uh, you know, as if it's like equal somehow, and, and also uh, people should be able to choose, and the choices are equal to each other. Um, you know, <laughs> such as torture, such as liberation. Yes, it's totally equal. Let's choose. 
Um, so I really, um, I really think that neoliberalism, uh, just like a lot of other scholars, particularly within American studies, have shown it's absolutely an economical policy and an economical framework. And, you know, we all know kind of where it came from, Margaret Thatcher and then Reagan. And of course, the reason I mentioned Reagan is because he, as governor, mm-hmm. was very famously like the first person to at least try to close down all the psychiatric facilities in California um, and was almost successful. And so uh, I'm mentioning that because this is very tied, of course, to the history of deinstitutionalization. I mean, deinstitutionalization was also a cost-cutting measure. I mean, I don't have any uh, kind of qualms with people who say that. But neoliberalism, of course, to to us, people who study critical theory and um, the, the history of, uh, of the U.S. and so on, is also a cultural phenomenon. It's also a sh- social phenomenon. And under that, and it created particular discourses, like this discourse of choice that was just mentioning. And so, for example, um, from, from, you know, my work, one of the very pervasive narrative, and I hope this will answer the question, it's just one example. One of the very pervasive narratives around institutionalization was and is that some people need it, right? Like some people uh, with particular disabilities, um, some some say severe disabilities or chronic or what have you will only will always need some kind of setting that's twenty four seven that's closed blah blah blah. This is not my argument. I'm saying people say that, and this because people say that, including professionals, including parents of people with disabilities and others, that kind of perpetuates this. Uh, um, professional concepts uh, that's called the the continuum approach um, or the institutional continuum. Um, it's a little bit complex to explain, but in, in just a few words, the continuum means that people with disabilities um, should be uh, relegated in terms of policy to a variety of settings. And the variety of settings goes on a continuum and it starts from the most restrictive, which is these large institutions that we talked about at the beginning of the uh, show. Um, and it goes all the way until, you know, living in your own house with supports, for example. Mm-hmm. And in between those two things, there's group homes and, you know, a lot of other things. So the continuum approach means that people should choose by people. It's mostly parents um, or family members. Um, it's rarely the person with a disability that gets to choose. Um, so in the continuum approach, people have, you know, the idea is you, you should have a choice into where people with disabilities should go. And what I claim in the book is until we get rid of all of that, until we get rid of the continuum, until we say, you know what? Institutionalization is absolutely not a choice. It shouldn't be on the table. And once it's not on the table, and once we don't think of, you know, incarceration um, of detention, of segregation, of torture as some kind of a choice that the people can make when it's off the table, then lo and behold, a lot of other possibilities emerge in terms of budgets, in terms of ideology, in terms culturally, and so on. And so this is just one example how pernicious neoliberalism is. It's not just an economic policy. It's really a discourse that affects how we think about ourselves. Um, in a very kind of Foucauldian way, way, right? It's a discourse that's productive. It's power that's productive. 
produces as this particular human being. Right. I mean, maybe, you know, we could talk about for a second, particularly when it came to uh, deinstitutionalization for intellectual and developmental disabilities. Like this was um, a lot of the people in opposition to deinstitutionalization there were parent groups, correct? Yes. yes. And, and this is all to say there's amazing parents and parent groups that have pushed for deinstitutionalization and the closure of institutions as well. I mean, there's always been both. Right. Uh, but, but yes, in the book, I also focus on the parent groups, and they still exist, um, who want um, to absolutely keep institutions open. And so a lot of the parent groups coalesce around uh, specific institutions, of course, where their family members are um, across the country, and they create these campaigns to keep the institutions open. Uh, and often in these campaigns, we see a collaboration between parents group, uh, unions, um, of people who work in these facilities, um, the employees themselves, and so on. So it's not, you know, they're often in coalition with other organizations. Um, but, um, yes, parents have been at least one, some parents at least have been one, uh, category. Uh, of organizations to keep the institutions alive. And maybe we could you talk a little bit about what sort of brings these coalitions together? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm assuming it has something to do with an issue of, um, you know, the individuals needing to be able to work and um, their care duties interfering with their work. And then also, if you close the institution, you lose all the uh, jobs of the people employed in the institutions, which creates, I guess, the moment for unity between like unions and, and parent groups, right? Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's incredibly complex, because, you know, of course, we need to remember that even today, after the institutionalization, it's not that more supports, financial supports were actually given to um, parents and family members to take care of or, or give care to um, their disabled family members at home. That did not happen. And so the assumption is that either it's institution or you have nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the false choice, right? This is the false choice. This, this should not be institutional nothing. And this is also not what people um, who fought for the institutionalization fought for. They did not fight for you know, uh, incarcerate us or nothing. <laughs> you know, they wanted supports um, to live interdependent lives, right? Like to live with supports in their place of, of um, choosing, whether it's their own home or home with other people. And so it's really um, important to say that that has not materialized. And of course, that is part of uh, patriarchy. And that is part of patriarchal um, systems of uh, economy and patriarchal capitalism in this case, and not just that, but that pattern also has a lot to do with race because the caretakers in these institutions, particularly nursing homes, are often majority women and um, majority immigrants or migrant, you know, laborers. And so, uh, and or women of color, this depends, again, like on the state, uh, of course, that people are in. And um, so we have, if we have a majority of, of women of color who work in these professions, then you start to see that, again, we have this kind of like false uh, dichotomy between, okay, either we cater to the, to the needs and desires 
of women of color who work in, um, in nursing homes, for example, or as personal assistants to people with disabilities, or we um, call for the liberation of people with disabilities. And of course, this is false narratives, you know, right. um, which is not pit these two groups against each, each other, because um, also they are the same group. You know, um, like you said at the beginning about prisons being very disabling, you know, caretaking, working in these facilities, um, that's also pretty disabling. So to say that these are totally two different population or to say that people with disabilities themselves don't provide care, of course, is false as well. So I don't know if this totally like answers your question, but, you know, in the book, I try to provide a very complex narrative that doesn't pit this group. But on the other hand, it doesn't provide this kind of neat us versus them uh, war stories that I think a lot of people are maybe looking for. Well, I mean, I feel like the real war story is that, you know, we prefer to design public policies and programs that don't give material support directly to the individual. We like to sort of design these like legal frameworks where people can enforce their rights through the courts, or we like to provide sort of pass through support if you think about you know the way that like so often like a medicaid managed care company would rather you know pay someone's um pay for have, having someone have receive care in a facility than pay for them to have home health care because home health care is more expensive despite the fact that that worker is making absolutely nothing probably and i think you know, it. I, maybe it's a good idea to talk about Reagan again, because this example of what Reagan did in California when he was governor is actually quite striking. Do, before I do that, I do want to say that, you know, even right now, which is the story, of course, after Reagan, but even right now, there's, you know, still a push to create policies of, you know, what used to be called money follows the person and you know, the, the names change over time. But the idea is that people with disabilities who get disability benefits should get the benefits, not the institution in which they live. And I don't know that everybody who listens understand this, but right now, if you live in a facility, the facility gets your benefits, mm -hmm. which is unfathomable. So you don't direct any of your services. You can't make decisions about your money. The money actually doesn't go to you. And the money is incredibly low, not to, you know, nobody is like getting millions out of this. But even that small um, amounts um, go to, the, to the, um, the, the, the institution. So this is just to relate to what you were saying. Um, you know, the story with Reagan is um, interesting in the sense of, um, it, it's a kind of a cautionary tale of, of the institutionalization, meaning can we celebrate the success of something that happened under incredibly oppressive, racist, classist, um, <laughs> ideologies, um, uh, you know, which is what Reagan did. So he decided to close down all the psychiatric facilities. Um, he said something to the effect of, uh, you know, psychiatric facilities are the biggest hotel chain in California or something like that. Right. Um, which, you know, is very reminiscent to the time, of course, we live. And um, so he, you know, closed down or tried to close down all the psychiatric hospitals um, in the state of, of California. And this was not because he somehow uh, was awakened 
to the needs uh, of people with disabilities uh, who are saying that they do not want to be um, hospitalized or incarcerated and that there's better ways to do it. Um, he, of course, wanted to do it as a cost-cutting measure. And to this day, I mean, there's there's such a big debate uh, in policy around, uh, for example, because, you know, Reagan's policies are also the ones that decimated uh, the uh, welfare state, you know, as we know, it is, he's not the only one, of course. I mean, Clinton did that as well. But in his time, um, you know, anything such as affordable and uh, accessible housing was, was completely kind of um, decimated. And so we start to see it from that point up until today, this arguing over things such as Okay, are people who are homeless, are they mentally ill or are they not mentally ill? And I talk about that in the book as well. And the reason why this is related is because if you can show that the majority of people who are housing insecure uh, or quote-unquote homeless are also um, under the category of quote-unquote mental illness, then it becomes um, a, a state issue or even a federal issue in regards to, you know, SSDI benefits, for example, um, social security disability mm-hmm. um, benefits. But if it's about um, housing insecurity, uh, it could be a municipal issue, you know, or even a state issue. And of course, the, the, I'm sorry, even a city issue. And of course, cities don't have the budgets that states and fed, federal entities have. So it becomes a kind of like pass the buck um, debate within policy, just like the the debate you were just mentioning in terms of who gets the 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 money um, is it the person or is it the facility? Um, you know, so starting from um, that era, we really see the debate kind of playing on and the passing of the buck kind of playing on uh, within uh, policy related to disability. Yeah, I mean, I think despite all the negative things that we've just talked about, though, the, the kind of amazing thing about about a lot of the stuff that you write about in this book is that it does kind of undermine the idea that movements for abolition are impossible because we have, you know, a tangible example of a misguided um you know, movement for abolition, let's say that Ronald Reagan of all people implements in California, but obviously the underpinning of that and the ideological drive behind that movement is, um, you know, cost cutting and the cost, it's like a continuation of this sort of like devaluation of, of disability and illness. Um, and I think the important thing about your book is not just because it provides so many lessons for us to learn about in this current moment that, you know, mistakes do not repeat, but it also kind of does destroy the narrative that getting rid of these types of institutions is impossible. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And, and just to kind of briefly um, correct, I, I don't think that Ronald Reagan um, abolished anything. I mean, I think <laughs> yes, he closed down things. Um, but of course, closure and abolition are absolutely not the same thing. And so what I try to show, and this is exactly like you say, this is one of the things I try to show in the book. Okay. So what is then the difference, right? Like how closing, um, parcel facilities is absolutely does not equate abolition. Um, you know, abolition is, is an ethical stance. Uh, abolition is about this kind of valuing people in completely different ways. Like we were talking at the beginning you know, valuing people beyond capitalism and, and so on. And so it, the thing that is really striking to me, whenever um, I've been doing, um, 
you know, talks about uh, prison abolition um, with, with activists, with, you know, people in school, with, you know, a variety of people. The, the first thing that people say, well, usually the first or second is something like, uh, what about the, you know, whatever, serial killer and whatever. <laughs> and then the, yes. the second, the second thing is um, usually, um, okay, let's say I believe you and we need prison abolition, but surely, you know, it can't happen in our lifetime. And then the, the third thing people say is, and it's always the same thing. It's amazing. Um, well, this could happen, but maybe in Norway. <laughs> it's always Norway or Sweden. Those are like the two kind of things. Um, and this usually comes to people who haven't been in Norway or Sweden. So what I think is really important about the instrumentalization is that it didn't happen in Norway and Sweden. It happened here. Um, actually, a form of it did happen <laughs> in Sweden. But, um, it, but it happened in the U.S. And it happened in our lifetime or for people who are really young in their parents' lifetime. And to me, that is so, so interesting because if you do look at decentralization as uh, a lot of things, but also a liberation movement and also an abolition movement, and some of the uh, abolitionary part of it worked and some of it did not. Um, but if we can at least say that it was also a push to change the way we view people with disabilities uh, a push to um, change the way we think about incarceration and institutionalization, um, then we have an abolitionary movement of our lifetime mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And I think that that is incredibly important to think about it as a as a precursor. Uh, and again, not as something that's like a panacea or um, we should um, kind of is a blueprint or something like that. I don't think anything is a blueprint. I don't even think that deinstitutionalization in one arena can play in a different arena or a different state. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can learn from it. Uh, I, I don't. I don't believe in these kind of ideas and blueprints, but we can um, at least learn from it as a precursor um, to prison abolition. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think the most important thing is to, like as you're saying, sort of learn about where these uh, arguments of like devaluation start to creep in, you know, where we start to see battles that are lost to like arguments of, of devaluation under capitalism and of the sort of like need for quote unquote productivity, right. To, and, and, you know, things to be deficit neutral. And I think, you know, it's, it's important. I, I really appreciate your book because I think it's important to also attempt to sort of tie abolition and disability justice together in a way that could provide, you know, inspiration to others to be thinking about these issues more interconnect interconnectedly and to be pushing for these things together. Because as you're saying, like, it's a lot of the same population, which is affected. There are, you know, systems of power in place, which like sort of are perpetuating the like survival of these of these institutions and these like carceral locales by like continuing to like pit these groups against each other in competition right and, and I think you know the the intersectional goal of your book is really important yeah um I think that is really the goal of the book I think it's important you know up until now we really talked about digitalization itself which I really thank you because uh, everybody always asks about the abolition part and they don't actually want to talk about this, <laughs> this abolition part, even though, um, you know, that's really the, the ideas of, of abolition, you know, um, 
that, that I bring about come from. Uh, but I do think it's important to say that this is not an analogy. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope this is clear. Like I'm not comparing and contrasting the instrumentalization to abolition. I mean, I'm saying that the instrumentalization is also abolition. And what I hope that this does is for people who do prison abolition, who don't know much about disability, that it gives them some kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say cultural competency, but some kind of an understanding of disability movements. Even for people who do disability rights stuff, I don't think that we talk about the instrumentalization as a disability movement. And we don't talk about interpsychiatry necessarily as a disability movement. And I think that they were and are. And so, to me, this is not a kind of a, a parallel field uh, that I'm trying to kind of bring together. These are the, the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you go, if you go into a prison, um, like you said, prison is maddening. Prison is disabling. I don't think you can do prison abolition without understanding disability justice. Uh, I don't think you can understand incarceration without understanding the variety of locations in which incarceration happens. And it doesn't just happen in detention centers and um, jails and prisons. It happens also in sex hospitals and other forms of um, carcerality. And so um, the intersection of these things is what is incredibly important, for, was incredibly important for me to bring together. I mean, that is really kind of the, the goal. Um, the goal here is to understand uh, abolition as a movement for liberation um, for, for all of us. Um, and to also understand how this is layered based on uh, race and gender and sexuality and ability and Satanism and settler colonialism and, you know, all of these uh, frameworks. And to also, you know, kind of understand how, again, t- to bring this understanding both to the realm of people who do already a uh, variety of, of prison abolition and other liberatory works, but also, I think people who do disability advocacy have a lot to learn mm-hmm. uh, about abolition and also about other disability movements. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think you know one of the things that we talk about on the show all the time is that how there is this sort of unfortunate framing that has occurred um, where you sort of have the idea that. You know, there are some disabled people who, uh, through employment, can like make themselves worthy enough to, or exceptional enough to be able to like, you know, live in in society, right? And if you and that one like helps perpetuate sort of these negative stereotypes and you know helps hide like disability issues from the general public because you've got the sort of long history of keeping people sort of out of the community in these in these warehoused facilities right you have sort of like generations of of people who have not been living amongst us right and so it's like a huge thing to push back on that you know in some way that disability could be separate from any of these other issues but like structurally speaking there's so much ideological weight behind the idea that like disability in and of itself is sort of this like narrow discrete category and i think what your work does really well is you try and like expand that that definition into something like much more representative of what the actual like experience is, you know? Yeah. I really, um, thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm glad it kind of came through. And of course I do that with a lot of other people, <laughs> um, as well, but 
this idea is so, so important, what you just said. Um, you know, in, in the book, I, ca- I call it this ink. Um, this is in the word disability, D-I-S, and ink is in incorporated or incarcerated. And it's exactly this idea of um, inclusion will not save us. Mm-hmm. And and the question and you know the question that comes really from the framework of disability justice, which is, what does it mean to be included in an oppressive system? Like you right. just gave the example of employment, right? Like what does it mean to be included um, in the status quo that we want to implode? And I'm saying that in under um, the frameworks of abolition, we want to implode it. It's a revolutionary framework, mm-hmm. um, which is why you know Reagan was not a part of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even if he created um, the conditions for the closure of these facilities that then kind of created frameworks uh, that necessitated rethinking things like value, right? Um, so this framework of this ink um, is, is, works on dual tracks. One is to understand how disability is incarcerated in both profit and nonprofit but also to understand how the opposite framework framework of inclusion is incredibly problematic for a variety of people with disabilities um, that do not want to assimilate or cannot assimilate, uh, right? So we have, you know, this dual track. And of course, in the book, I show how this works uh, in relation particularly to race ability, mm-hmm. meaning um, how race uh, and uh, disability are connected together so that some people absolutely cannot assimilate um, and also others um, do not want to. Um, and I think it's incredibly hard to, for me to, to, to bring this critique as somebody who comes from very deep roots within disability studies and disability culture and um, med studies and the field of intellectual disabilities and I totally understand why people push for inclusion and why that word inclusion is so, I do think it's, it's radical. I do think the push, when some people say inclusion, for example, in kind of like radical special education circles, I don't think they mean what we, you know, to use Princess Bride, right? I don't think they mean what uh, they think we, that means. Um, the, I think they mean inclusion um, to implode the system. So when people say, oh, we need to, um, we need to do inclusion for students with disabilities, what some people mean by that is we need to implode special education and we need to provide education for everybody, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that there is no kind of special, not special, you know, and all of that. But I think what people hear is let's bring in students with disabilities and kind of like plop them, um, in, in a different settings and call it a day. But, that that is not kind of the intent. So I'm I'm trying with this concept of this ink to to understand. Okay, how do we um, create a revolutionary framework um, that implodes the system instead of this? Um, let's bring everybody together to assimilate kind of approach. No, and I, I think one of the things that's really uh, that that we got into a lot in our discussions of your book was the 
the fact that so many of these educational systems that are designed for the most extreme examples, be they like special education or like, you know, educational programs and like juvenile detentional facilities are all about, you know, trying to measure whether or not the individual uh, could be prepared to be like mainstreamed in some capacity and entered into the workforce. And I think, you know, as you're saying, like an, an abolitionist perspective is, uh, is important to approach all of this work with because it's fundamentally about disrupting, I think, fitness for work as being the sort of baseline value judgment here, correct? Fitness for work and fitness in general. Right. I mean, disrupting yeah. really fitness is a, is a word that comes from eugenics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this whole idea of who's fit and unfit, I mean, unfit literally is a word, a eugenicist word. And so, um, I think to disrupt all of that, uh, under capitalism and, and outside of capitalism as well. I mean, this has, of course, um, uh, repercussions for, uh, reproduction. And I don't mean, I mean, social reproduction, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Um, sterilization uh, and, and all of these histories. So, yes, absolutely. I think that this idea, which again plays into this idea of the continuum, right? Like people need to be ready to move across the continuum. So you can't start in an institution or in special ed or in juvie and then just quote unquote like move out, right? No, you need this like tier system. They have it in prisons too. You need to s- step down, you know, that. Um, kind of mechanism that people say you need to step down uh, mm-hmm. for uh, tier three to tier two to tier one until you can kind of um, get more um, skills and get more, uh, you know, and so on and so on. And, and of course, this idea is ludicrous. Like we don't do that to people who are not incarcerated or not disabled, um, who are not, um, are, are part of like our legal mechanisms, you know, people who, um, use, use, uh, drugs and so on. And so, um, I feel like it's a very, uh, hypocritical kind of system. You don't, you don't do that with like teenagers or, you know, other people. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, again, like ableist and so on, um, system. I, I do want to say though, that one of the things that is so incredibly useful to take from these evolutionary experiments is exactly that. It says, what will happen if we start from the tier five, right? Like Mm -hmm. what would happen if we start from quote unquote, the most severe, right? What would happen if we start from, uh, you know, and and prison abolitionists talk about it as in, we have to talk about the non, non, nons, Um, Mm -hmm. the non, non is like not sexual offender and not violent and so on. And, you know, we, yes, talking about abolition through the framework of legalizing pot, I think is great, but I think maybe it would be, um, useful to also talk about abolition from the perspective of people who did harm that is violent. Um, Mm -hmm. and what do we do then, right? What do we do with people who are, um, do have complex medical needs? Um, you know, and this really comes from the work of abolitionists like uh, Erica Miners and Ruthie Gilmore. We talk about it in a different context, but I think to embrace the quote unquote severe case uh, is incredibly important to doing abolition work on the ground. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things that you you talk about in the book is sort of this misconception of 
uh, a type of like translation, which I think contributes to the idea, the perception that these like extreme cases can't are like too big for society to address and keep itself safe, which is like hilarious because it's not like any sites of like any carceral sites actually do anything to keep people safe. They just pretty much do harm. Um, you know, there's this misconception that that sort of the population that was in uh, that was liberated from institutions was sort of like somehow wholesale translated into uh, mass incarceration. And you talk about how that's a not only um, a historical, but it's a false equivocation. These things didn't happen at the same time. And it, it wasn't a a movement of one population that was institutionalized into a different, you know, sort of carceral setting. Yeah, exactly. You said it perfectly. I'm just listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think you could explain that a little bit, though, sort of where, like, maybe what this misconception is to people who might, you know, because often you hear like, oh, you know, we, we closed the psych hospitals and, um, all the mad people were out on the street and they all became, you know, homeless. And then we uh, arrested them because homelessness is criminalized, for ex- for example. And so there's a sort of like false idea that that there was some sort of like translative process of this this one enormous population of people who were institutionalized to the second enormous population of people who are incarcerated under mass incarceration. And while they're both enormous populations, that sort of false correlation to me is often used to justify the scale of mass incarceration right now because it's kind of like pretending that that this is just the way it's always been you know Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean you um you know really summarize it beautifully uh i would just add you know the the danger in that discourse to me um is that in addition to the fact it's not accurate and and, Mm -hmm. you know i can talk more about why that is but um more so though what's what's really important is what happens with it right how people weaponize this mm-hmm. to do two things one is to blame the institutionalization for the rise of incarceration which then leads them to think that somehow uh imprisonment or mass incarceration or hyper incarceration whatever people want to call it um is not intrinsically disabling and maddening, which it absolutely is. So then when we ask, why are there so many people with mental, in mental health crisis in, um, in prisons? And then we answer it by saying, oh, because there's no psych hospitals anymore. Um, right. Then it doesn't lead us to say, because prisons are really a site of um, incredible trauma um, and disablement. And... Um, you know, it's it's just um, state violence, and it's violence against women and against um, gender conforming people, and and against men, of course. It does not solve those issues of violence. Uh, it creates those issues of violence and disablement and trauma, and reinforces them. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that's really dangerous is that then this uh, false uh, equivalence narrative, you know, that we could call the new asylum narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, what that does is that it calls for some people or leads some people to call for the reopening of <laughs> psychiatric <laughs> institutions, which is unfathomable after decades and decades in which people fought to close them down and to change the framework by which we understand mental um, difference um, to then use mass incarceration 
which is, of course, an, a huge problem, but to then use it to then oppress um, further people who are um, have mental health differences is just unbelievable to me and incredibly dangerous. Yeah, that's kind of the preference now. I mean, from the um, mainstream perspective, we saw that in the New York City No New Jails fight where mm -hmm. um, you had abolitionist language appropriated by the state to try and say, you know, by closing Rikers and building, you know, brand new luxury, high rise, humane mental health, uh, you know, holding facilities, that that was somehow an answer to like, you know, a massive movement demanding the closure of you know, one jail. It, it seems to me that I think, you know, this is where disability justice can give the greatest strength towards like current, you know, critiques of the prison industrial complex and in that, you know, it's very important to make sure that like the disability narrative isn't co-opted to help support further sites of incarceration, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, um, and this is, you know, was really the the goal with the book and, and a lot of the work that they do is to just kind of um, talk about it again in an intersectional way, not in a way that, you know, these things are analogies, but really to understand that this is done in our name, the name of people with disabilities, the way of people with mental health differences, people who are mad and so on. Um, this this opening up of, of um, new, new jails in the name of, of mental health treatment and so on. So I think this is really the time for these movements to come together, um, prison abolition, disability justice, um, disability rights too. Um, people with, uh, people who are mad, uh, med movements and so on, mental, mental health movements. And to say, you know, not in our name, a kind of, this will not, this will not pass. Um, and, and I think that this is, incredibly important um, in our time for, for two reasons. One is because we're starting to see more and more this ideas of abolition and defunding kind of circulate in the general uh, imaginary in ways that were unimaginable even a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, even a year ago, um, the scale of the magnitude of the uprising, the racial uprising that has occurred uh, in the past year. And then uh, secondly, because of COVID, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think not understanding how congregate facilities, um, all of them are incredibly harmful and disabling, um, really brings a, a completely fragmented framework of liberation together. Now, I'm sure you've uh, heard of this thing called the Great Barrington Declaration by now, which is... Um, an idea, a, a group that is forwarding an idea that's gotten some traction through their sort of astroturfed media empire backing them up, which the idea is basically that we've got to reopen right now in COVID. And yes, there are vulnerable populations, but the real way to deal, deal with this is to to take those people and warehouse them in a way that... Um, keeps them out of society so that we can reopen the economy. Obviously, you wrote this book way before COVID, but is there anything that you would maybe like add or update to your argument, like taking into consideration everything that's going on now? Um, what I would add to it is that, you know, the, the, the book talks about um, really the periods from the 50s, um, but mostly it talks about kind of 60s, 70s, 80s um, as a time frame. I would say the ideas... Um, 
in this kind of like uh, either herd immunity is one way or mm-hmm. let's, you know, kind of uh, rile up people who are um, vulnerable and put them away. That's straight up eugen- eugenics. That is like 19th <laughs> century, early 20th century. Like you don't have to go to the 50s in order mm-hmm. to um, to look at that. Um, that is really what that was. It was this idea that we can sacrifice, um, you know, in critical theory, we can talk about this necropolitics and so on. But this idea that we can sacrifice um, and should <laughs> um, sacrifice uh, a group of vulnerable people in order to, quote unquote, save the others. Uh, I don't think you need to go to the institutionalization to kind of see how that plays out. I mean, that is much in, much earlier um, uh, idea. And it's an idea that's, of course, very rooted in um, colonialism and racism and, and you know, who's dis- uh, dispensable uh, and so on. Yeah, totally. Um I, I've had such a fun time talking to you. I was wondering if you have a little bit of time for maybe some direct questions from our reading group, um, if you have a moment. I'm sure. I would, I, mean, also love, I would also love to hear what the reading group um, thought. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, yeah. it, it was honestly, it's been, I think, a wonderful experience for, for all of us involved um, because your book is a very good framework for approaching thinking about how to analyze responses to COVID, right? Because as we're talking about this sort of, this idea of interrogating what the the cost benefit analysis is under like underpinning all sorts of like actions, be they from individuals or, or, you know, in the sense of like government or state acting, it's really important to try and think about what is a system of value that's being reinforced by our various responses to COVID. And so I think our discussions of your book have been not just important to me from like the framework of like disability studies, but you know, to all of us just in our personal lives, because it's been a really good social experience, you know, to sit around with like 20 of your closest internet friends in five different countries and talk about this stuff for three hours. Um, you know, one of the things that we we got to a lot was sort of thinking about illness and punishment um, and, you know, sort of the binary of like sick and well and how punishment fits into this whole structure. Do you think you could talk for a second about just the other systems that you, you think are like ripe for interrogating like this, the system of value, which pits um, capital against survival? Hmm. What system does not? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding one that doesn't. One thing that we started talking about in particular was sort of the site of, um, of like the family, you know, mm-hmm. how, how does the family as a institution sort of exist to like give permission for, for violence and stuff like that. And I think we just kept sort of coming back to the idea that, you know, the best sort of way to chip away at the carceral state and at this like sort of state of violence was to be really pushing back and trying to like redefine, redefine, um, uh, severity and permanence as it relates to like our, our ideas about these conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so maybe one thing that we could talk about, uh, would be, could we talk for a second about sort of the idea of like compassionate release and how that, how that plays out, um, how we sort of like create these, uh, systems that like are used in advocacy, right. Um, Mm -hmm. to try and get people released from prison, but 
in doing so, we are also often foregrounding the ar argument that the most ill people can get released from prison and that you have to be so absolutely sick um, that you're practically on the verge of death to be released compassionately and how how infrequently this happens and how this is an idea kind of exists to sort of slow progress. Right. And and so compassionate release is, you know, one good example, um, getting people with mental health differences to not be in solitary is another example. Exempting people with intellectual disabilities from the death penalty is another example. Um, if I understand your kind of mode of uh, uh, inquiry. Um, mm -hmm. And these are all examples of really um, pushing kind of racial ableist frameworks in the service of supposedly liberating people. Um, and, and sometimes actually liberating people in the sense of, okay, not putting to death, um, you know, or state murder or whatever you want to call it. Um, somebody like releasing people from death row based on, on a variety of disabilities. Um, and then having them kind of languish in prison, what uh, people who are incarcerated call, um, uh, uh, death by incarceration or, you know, in the legal literature is life in prison. Um, you know, we can debate what is the difference, you know, between those two, but for people who actually advocate against the death penalty, I mean, that is a success story, right? Like everybody that you get out of the death penalty is a success story. Everybody that's compassionately released is, is, is released, right? And a success story. But then, you know, it's the question of the ends justify the means. Um, and like you said early on, I mean, in the case of something like compassionate release, it's, it's so, so minuscule where that actually succeeds. And in terms of the death penalty too, uh, and in fact, we just saw, I mean, this year, it happens every year that, um, states, especially Texas, just completely ignore, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court decision and just end up executing people with intellectual disability regardless of anything. But more so, and this is why this is racial ableism, and I don't write about it in the book, but, um, you know, now there's a push, um, because IQ tests are, of course, incredibly, um, biased in terms of language and so on. And it's been kind of shown that it has a racial bias um, and cultural bias like within it. Uh, what some lawyers are doing is that they're using that uh, not in order to get people out of the death penalty, but to get them in. Oh, wow. Meaning that, yes, they increase people's IQ score if they are people of color or uh, immigrants because they're saying, okay, IQ test didn't capture this well. So they're using like these kind of supposedly liberatory um, ideas of, you know, your tests are biased and they're using that in order to um, create more quote unquote opportunities for people to be on, on that row mm -hmm. and to be executed. So, this is the ultimate answer to the question is, um, you know, as Audrey Lord said, uh, the master's tools um, will not, um, you know, break the master's house. But not only will they not break, I mean, they will um, kill you. <laughs> yeah. Um, another, no, I mean, that's it's very true. Another thing that uh, that um, people brought up, and if you don't want to get into this, it's totally okay, was one of the things that I think a lot of people in our discussions were talking about is they really um, 
felt like that there wasn't that much discussion of how like immigration and customs enforcement fits into it, which obviously is a really narrow point of <laughs> critique, because as you said, you've been writing this book over 10 years and it is a, a history in a lot of ways. But do you think you could talk about sort of like how how ICE and the current narrative around ICE fits into this this continuum that we've been talking about as well and how that fits into your argument? Uh, I mean, I can, uh, although it wouldn't be from a very kind of scholastic uh, point of view because, you know, I don't, um, this is not the area that I'm like mostly like focused on. Uh, I do think it's, it's a good critique in the sense of, um, yes, it's not in the book. Um, other sites of incarceration are also not in the book. I don't talk at all about Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't talk, I hardly talk at all about young people. Um, I really focus on adult facilities. And this is because honestly, bureaucratically and otherwise, it just operates so differently. Uh, and to talk about, um, a process like deinstitutionalization, you really have to be precise. Mm-hmm. And like I said at the beginning of our conversation, even state by state, it differs so, so, so much. So then to also talk about, um, you know, how it works federally, how it works in terms of ICE, how it works, uh, would make a very different kind of tale. But of course, that the ideas here of, uh, particularly the idea of racial criminal pathologization, uh, or what you were talking earlier about how illness and punishment or wellness and punishment are completely integrated into each other. Uh, I mean, of course, that, that works across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of how traumatic and disabling detention is and incarceration is. I mean, we see that with people who work, particularly, of course, with kids who have been separated now because of the awful, awful policies we have. But this is true even before Trump. Um, you know, this did not start in the last four years. Um, you know, uh, detention, immigration detention is incredibly traumatic. Um, refugees seeking asylums. Um, especially ones that have disabilities, um, you know, is, is another kind of framework that people don't talk about, uh, including in disability movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's just like so much that um, we need to bring into disability um, movements um, to, to really understand what the effects of state violence uh, as disablement, what that means across the board. And absolutely, that plays out within the you know, ice as well. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, I, it's so interesting because I think in our conversations, we kept returning to to education, both because of some of the backgrounds of people who were in the group who are like paraeducators or teachers, but also because I think, you know, people were drawing some pretty strong parallels to, um, you know, like the boarding schools that are run by many governments, uh, United States included, uh, where you had sort of these like indigenous re-education schools and how much, you know, I guess trying to like how much the, the like ideology of neoliberalism and of this sort of like inherent structure of devaluation like is instilled in children in in educational settings and how that sort of grows through social reproduction as people age, as they enter society, as they enter, you know, this uh, this savage capitalist survival race or whatever. And and I think, it, you know, it's something that I I really appreciate about appreciate about your work coming from like the disability st- newly to the disability studies field is that you know you really do take some serious steps outside of the discipline in acknowledging um the racial implications of a lot of like 
disability studies. And so I think one of the final questions that people really wanted to hear from you was sort of, you know, what is, what is your, what is your critique of like, why disability studies has not, um, risen to the task of like necessarily having a more intersectional movement until now. I mean, and not even now, frankly, I don't think that we're quite there yet, but it's a, it's a very whitewashed narrative that's sort of forwarded and there aren't many accounts like yours that offer, um, more realistic and less, um, neoliberal analysis of, of actually what's gone on. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, First, I want to, you know, just push back a little bit on this idea that, you know, boarding school movements were part of um, neoliberal understanding of productivity. I mean, they completely preceded um, the neoliberal turn. I mean, the neoliberal turn was, you know, 70s uh, onward Mm -hmm. and in the U.S., really in the 80s. Um, And the boarding school, you know, movement was, of course, you know, very much predates that. But, um, you know, your point remains, but I just want to you know, as, as, um, I'm not a historian, but I mean, I think, I think being precise is, is important. Oh, no, of um, course. Um, and it's something that, you know, we also talk about in, uh, the, the first book, The Disability Incarcerated, the, the anthology. We kind of try to provide this genealogy of, um, of incarceration, uh, in relation to disability. And, and we talked about boarding schools as, as being part of it. So, um, and and it was much kind of a longer genealogy. Again, this book really talks about neoliberalism because this is the reasoning and the time frame of the industrialization. But if people are interested in the kind of like long um, durée of of these frameworks, I mean, I think in that book we talk much more. You know, eighteenth century, nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, the question about race and disability, I mean, you know, also is related to that book as well. Um, you know, our attempts to kind of make it very intersectional and to draw on people um, within and outside of disability studies to do that. And I think that's the kind of answer that I want to give is that, first of all, I think what people call disability studies is pretty narrow. And so I, I actually think a lot of people do race, race analysis, critical race theory, racial analysis, um, talk about um, colonialism and settler colonialism and so on. Um, as it's related to disability, but they don't call themselves disability studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't read them as such. So I don't think, um, I don't think like the studies themselves are always white. I think what we call canonically disability studies. Right. <laughs> maybe is, is the problem. And it is a problem. I told yeah. you, you're not pointing into not, to nothing. I mean, you're pointing into an issue. But I think part of the issue is how we construct a, can- a, a canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an issue in a lot of fields, uh, of course, not just disability studies. And I think um, the field, if you understand it differently, it really opens up, right? Um, is France for non-disability studies? He's not disability studies. I would say I he mean, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who writes about war is writing about disability studies. And, and he's a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, you know, and so on. But of course, you know, he wrote um, in the 50s and uh, he died very young and so on and so on. So, I mean, to put him into that framework, like we also don't want to do a postmortem, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, analysis. But um, I, I think it depends on like who we read and who we bring like into the field, right? And what their contributions are. So some of it is about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this whole um, 
you know, why the so-and-so doesn't write about this or that, I think are very good questions. Um, but also why don't we read so-and-so that does right. write about this that are also good questions. Um, so I think it's both and, but more so I would say, you know, disability rights movements themselves that of course were at least one, at least in the U.S., at least one point that, um, point of, um, creation of disability studies, right, came from activism and people within disability rights movements. I think this is kind of the original sin. You know, mm-hmm. it's, is um, lack of intersectional understanding. Um, and, um, you know, and, and they've been critiqued, disability rights movement, for being sexist, um, for having these, like, charismatic white men leaders, um, and erasing, you know, other forms of leaderships or participation, for focusing on particular forms of inclusion, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, mm-hmm. and, you know, other things. I think all of that is incredibly true. And if it's true to disability rights, it's true to disability studies, because this is one of the points of entry of the field. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what I would say. No, for, I, I totally agree. Um, let me see if there's any more questions. I mean, it's almost hard to try and distill it down because it's like we've spent hours and hours sitting and talking about it. And I think the most the most interesting thing was just being able to really, you know, intensely interrogate where the origins of these sort of types of valuation like exist in all sorts of aspects of society. And it was fantastic to have people bringing in their own experiences, you know, some people being IDD with their experiences with like, you know, mainstreaming programs or Mm -hmm. people who have been um, incarcerated in psych facilities. And one of the things that people brought up a lot as well was sort of like this, um, it was an interesting through line where people kept like being like, oh, this reminds me so much of like a this structure of power. Oh, this reminds me of that structure of power. And I think, you know, in my mind, the end, at the end of the day, like what someone should take away from your book is that, you know, ableism and eugenics are not something that's over, obviously, but that, you know, much of our contemporary framework is founded in these principles and, um, you know, the, the history of eugenics as it, as it influences, you know, all sorts of decision-making from just like whether we're going to do money follow the, follows the person programs and give people money directly. Um, or if we're going to say that those people are not responsible enough and they're just going to want spend it on drugs and alcohol. So we've got to give it to the treatment facility because that person's not responsible that, that, you know, all these systems are eugenics. And I, I think it's like, that's actually, that's something we talk about on the show all the time. And I think we often get accused of like pointing at anything and accusing it of being, you know, somehow eugenics. But (laughs) we like to say that like if you lift a rock, like you will find eugenics under it regardless, pretty much Mm -hmm. within America in particular. Um, Thank you so much for for talking to me. I I really appreciate it. Is there anything, any final points that you want to talk about or any, Anything you want to um, get into that we didn't talk about today? Um, I think we got into a lot. Um, <laughs> I just want to, you know, just convey like a lot of gratitude. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, when you write a book, especially a book, I mean, I, I'm used to writing very collaborative things and working in collectives and, um, and so on. And uh, the book was not that. It was a very solitary practice. The writing, I mean, not the coming to ideas. The coming ideas. Mm-hmm 
definitely a collective endeavor. But this, this sitting on your butt, you know, for hours on end and, you know, writing it into a book, it's a very solitary practice. And so once it's released into the world, you never know what will happen, you know, with your, with your endeavors. And so I really, um, it's, I don't take it for granted, um, that you all spend, you know, that much time that you did, uh, with the book and that, um, it brought you some, um, newfound understanding on knowledge that you probably already had, right? Um, but came to kind of collective understanding around. And so I really want to thank you for taking the time and doing that. Oh, no, I mean, to be honest, it's, I think it's been so important because it's allowed us to discuss also sort of like how, how money fits into even being able to do things like a reading group, right? Because we we're meeting decentralized, you know, not in this discord, but in a different discord in the one for the show that's public. And as a result, we're able to create a space that might not be physical, but a space that is sort of outside of the constraints of capitalism, where we can sit down and have these conversations. And it's, it's really hard to build community like that, because there are so many power structures which exist to try and like, prevent these types of like groups and conversations from forming and these things, these ideas from being talked about everything from just, you know, the fact that like a a lot of us are, you know, like a lot of people are still working. It's a pandemic, but that doesn't mean that people are not, you know, going to their jobs like in person, putting their lives at risk. Um, Not everyone has the time to read. So we said, you know what, we're going to do this in a way that, you know, might feel slow to some people, but means that like, there's no way that you can't participate. So we have like a rule of like, no reading required, we're going to make the Daniel track and, and, you know, give everyone a chance to use my screen reader um, to help them read along, because maybe you don't have time. And so we started sort of just talking about like, the radical praxis of just being able to gather in a space and engage with a work like yours in the way that we were and how so often like that kind of idea and that that practice is like, okay, you can do that if it's part of like some sort of like job oriented training in some capacity, you know, you can do that in school, but it's, you know, there are a few opportunities to actually like spend time with a text like this, um, even in school, you know, I, I don't think I've ever taken a class where we've been like, okay, we're going to take one chapter a week, three hours a week. And it's, you know, I think we did 10 weeks because we broke the uh, introduction into two parts and then we did some programming afterwards. We actually followed you um, with discussion of the uh, Socialist Patient Collective, SPK. Are you familiar with, I'm assuming you're familiar with their work. Socialist Patient Collective? I don't think so. Oh, they're a group. They're a group out of Germany, actually, um, Mm. who around, like in the early 70s was sort of like doing things very parallel to the American um, anti-psychiatry movement, but it was sort of led by one doctor and they were, they were criminalized as terrorists um, for, and and the doctor was like arrested and and accused of uh, a bombing plot. So I I think, Mm. um, you know, it's been just absolutely fantastic to sort of get together some of us patients, some of us not patients and um, all of us sort of with the background of the show, which is like, very um I think invested in like critiquing like consumer framings of of health and our our sort of broader political home is towards like taking our political economy and recentering it you know absent of these value judgments that we've been talking about that that Mm -hmm. sort of underpin everything so it's just been 
the perfect text for us. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing this. Yeah, thank you. And um, thanks for having me. Now, just a quick aside. Thank you for listening. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You can support our work and get access to our entire catalog of back episodes in all of Monday's bonus episodes. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye. I got a watch instead. I keep it quiet as cat. Yeah, I think I spent most of my life depressed. Only thing on my mind was that didn't know my time was next. next. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to refine the shit. I redefine myself. First, I had to find it. I couldn't find a friend. Had to rely on my wits. I be with Mike and man. Nowadays I be with Sage with Six. Chris, you dig? I'm in LA, we go. Please come and claim me, kid. I cannot play with them. Yeah, yeah. Let's try a different approach out. I celebrate with a toast, bro. Do you know if you with me, we homebound. I need a city to hold down. You niggas gave me a coast. You went and gave me a cape, but that never gave me no hope. Yeah, I found a new way to cope. It ain't no slave in my soul, but I keep the memories close alive. Even when I hit a low, I still get thanks to the most high. I can't do favors no more. If you lame me, you broke and you waiting for cosign. I take a play to go. Right after break, bro. Loose on my chain is gold. Tell me how you been faking the whole time. That's a surveillance goal. These niggas be playing for both sides. This shit can take a toll. There ain't no. Bro.